Hey, if you're just joining Pitchfork Economics in this episode, thank you for being here, but I'd love for you to consider going back to the first episodes. What we're trying to do is lay out a case that neoclassical economics and neoliberalism are largely a protection racket for rich people. And some of the content in the early episodes will help you understand the content in later episodes. So in any case, thanks for listening. If you look at the top list of shareholders across most competitors, what you find is that they're all owned by the same people. Facebook has bought the photo sharing application Instagram for $1 billion. These are very much politically motivated assumptions that serve one class over another, and it's that class that's been winning for a long time. U.S. Airways is no more. The carrier completed its final flight early this morning, the last leg of its merger with American Airlines. They understood that monopolization was a threat to democracy. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. Confessions of an American Capitalist, caught on tape. So we choose who goes first by whoever spins higher, right? Correct. I think I think you yeah. need one each. Right? Three. Look at that. Five. Okay. So I get to... Seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Chance. Oh, I don't want chance. I wanted to. You're going to land on boardwalk. Go to jail. Go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Oh, my God. Just like real life. Just like real Just life. Just like real Goldie, life. Goldie, in this episode of Pitchfork okay. Economics, we're going to focus on Monopoly and its evil twin, Monopsony. But... I think it's interesting to start out by acknowledging that the most familiar thing about Monopoly to most people is actually the game of Monopoly. Yeah, do not pass go. Do not, <laughs> do not collect, collect $200. $200. Yeah. yeah, and um, the game has a really interesting history, doesn't it? Yeah, so you know everybody's familiar with the Milton Bradley version, but but that game was actually based on an original game that was meant as a teaching tool, and it had two sets of rules. One is the familiar set that everybody plays today, in which you try to be a monopolist and you try to drive the other players into bankruptcy. The other, and the one that the original author of the game uh, really intended to get out there, was an alternative way of playing in which you played more cooperatively, in which you tried to share the wealth and share the welfare. Of course, we ended up with the latter. <laughs> and, you know, monopoly and monopsony have become really important concepts for folks to understand who want to uh, participate in economic debate because... They are, um, they're super relevant to what's happening in our economy today. Right, right. We've, we've talked over previous episodes a lot about the uh, plight of working and middle class Americans, how wages have stagnated or declined over the past 40 years. And, you know, a lot of politicians and pundits, they attributed that to uh, structural changes in the economy to technological advances, automation, the creation of the information economy, globalization, etc., as if it's inevitable. But it turns out 
that a lot of this has to do with growing levels of market concentration, particularly when you mention that word monopsony, which is described it as a monopoly's uh, uh, evil twin. It's when you have essentially a monopoly in purchasing power. Versus a monopoly in selling power. Right. And right. the thing that matters most for wages is that growing monopsony in the labor market in which as the economy concentrates into fewer and fewer hands and there are fewer and fewer employers to compete for your labor, uh, it actually ends up creating this extreme power imbalance between labor and, well, to sound like a Marxist capital. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, well, in theory, uh, based on neoclassical economic ideas, people are free to sell their labor to anyone in a perfectly efficient market as a practical matter that just doesn't obtain. That in fact, for all intents and purposes, large employers effectively collude on keeping wages low. And in many places, people just don't have a choice about where they can choose to work. And so as a practical matter, as industries in our country have consolidated, and they have consolidated enormously, that has massively changed the power dynamic between workers and owners of businesses. And that has contributed to a huge extent to the diminishment of wages. Right. And, and well, market concentration, monopoly, monopsony have been getting a lot of buzz recently. Actually, this is at the heart, at the very beginning of economics, of the whole field of economics. It is what prompted Adam Smith to write The, the Wealth of Nations. It was actually a reaction to the legal monopolies of the mercantilist era in which he lived. Right. And the Tea Party itself, <laughs> right, right. The actual Tea Party, Boston Tea Party, was a, was of course a reaction to the monopolistic behavior of, of the West, of, the West India Company. Yeah, yes. Okay, here we go. Ten. Of course, luxury I get tax. the luxury tax. Luxury tax. <sighs> so, Nick, with all this market concentration, uh, I, I've got a question for you. Is this actually capitalism? Well, not according to a new book by a guy named Jonathan Tepper, who has written this really cool book called The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition. And in it, he argues, and I think very, very persuasively, using great examples and a ton of data, that we actually don't really have the kind of capitalist system that we thought we had or we should have, which is a system in which lots and lots of companies are competing both for customers and for workers. What we have ended up with over the last 40 years uh, since the rise of neoliberalism are monopolies or oligopolies or duopolies that both take advantage of their customers, but also their workers. And that, that the changing regulatory framework, which enabled a, a huge amount of corporate concentration, is what is driving the record amounts of economic inequality and the record amount of corporate profits that we see in our economy today. Hello? John? Uh, yes. Hey, it's Nick. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How's it going? 
Uh, right. Uh, thank you so much for uh, having me on your podcast. Yeah, happy to do it. So, John, to the best uh, of your ability, can you try and characterize what's happened to corporate concentration in the United States over the last 30, 40 years? Yes. So when people think about sort of industrial concentration, the average person thinks about the word uh, monopoly. And, and essentially the idea is sort of in, in a perfectly competitive market, there are a lot of companies competing to offer a good or a service. And at the opposite end of that, you have monopolies where there's only one company that you know provides that good or a service. And unfortunately, over the last 40 years in the United States, what's happened is that since the Reagan administration changed the merger guidelines in 1982, companies have been able to merge uh, more easily with each other. And so if you think of the Sweet 16, for example, or the World Cup, you start with sort of 16 teams and you go down to eight and four. And so in many industries in the United States, what we've seen is competitors have disappeared as they've been swallowed up by bigger companies. And so, you know, if you think of, for example, the airline industry, it's gone from, you know, having, you know, more than nine players now down to four major players who completely dominate the market. And this has happened in, in you know, after the financial crisis where we've seen a huge uh, wave of bank mergers. And in industry after industry, you end up with less competition and fewer players. And so that's what the, we talk about when we talk about industrial concentration. Yeah. And so just to draw out a point that you elaborate on in the book and using the airline example, it's actually worse than, than it sounds because as a practical matter, Market by market, it's even more concentrated than the four. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's not like all four of those airlines are equally competitive in each market. They've actually carved up the geography in a way that makes it even worse than that. Yes, and this happens in, in many industries. So, for example, if you uh, look at the airline industry, Delta controls Atlanta, American controls Charlotte, uh, American also controls Dallas. And so these are called fortress hubs, which allow them essentially to have, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, local monopolies. And so these fortress hubs are very, very profitable for them. They can raise prices, they can charge whatever they want for baggage fees. And so the competition appears on paper, but actually, in practice, you know, you have very little choice in terms of who you might fly for many uh, airlines. But this is true in many other industries as well. So, for example, in the agricultural industry, generally you have these very large meat companies and they have production contracts with farmers. And the big meat companies don't really compete with each other because, you know, people need to sell their hogs or uh, chickens and they don't really the meat doesn't travel sort of more than 50 to 100 miles. And so as long as you've carved up your territory in the same way that the airlines do, you can enjoy a local monopoly. And th that's one reason why, you know, there's an article this morning in the Wall Street Journal talking about how farmers' bankruptcies are, are rising quickly and they've been, you know, at uh, horrible levels for, for many years. Um, and at the same time, you have sort of tremendous profitability when it comes to the agricultural giants and the, the meatpacking companies. So in the book... I rather provocatively talk about the mob commission, which divided up the U.S. by geography. Um, in, a, in a way, what we've actually seen is companies do this in practice in, in many different industries, sometimes speaking to each other, but often just in terms of uh, tacit collusion where they just you know, agree not to compete in, in practice. And that's just the uh, visible concentration. In, in your book, you talk about horizontal shareholding. Could you explain a bit what that is and, and what its effect is? 
Yes. So a horizontal shareholding is the, the best way to think about it. And you know, we sort of talk about this in the book where my co-writer wrote this wonderful chapter. Basically, if you think of J.P. Morgan back in the day, he owned uh, many different uh, railroads. And uh, likewise, many of the other big robber barons, as they were called back then, there might have been five or six or seven companies, but in fact, they were all owned by the same person. And so that was called horizontal shareholding, where you know you might see different companies, but in fact, it was one owner. What's happened over the last sort of 10 to 15 years in the United States, it was happening uh, previously, but it's become much worse, is that if you look at the top list of shareholders across most competitors, what you find is that they're all owned by the same people. And this matters an enormous amount. In a competitive world, if you own one airline and I own another, I might want to go eat a little bit of your pie. I might want to take some market share. I might want to expand. Mm-hmm. But if both of our airlines are owned by Warren Buffett, and and by the way, Warren Buffett does own all the airlines, um, <laughs> then you know he doesn't want that competition, right? What no. he wants to see is that they're all keeping pretty high margins, not competing, not overexpanding, you know, uh, charging a lot of money, and so. Warren Buffett is essentially the has the horizontal shareholding across the entire industry. He's not made a bet on Delta. He's not made a bet on American. He's making essentially a sort of holding company, if you will, in practice. And so that's the big problem that we see. Some of this is due to passive investing, where you end up with you know people just put money into uh, sort of um, ETFs or in, in you know so BlackRock is one of the biggest uh, holders of companies, but there's no active owner pushing for uh, real competition. And instead what you have is all these uh, companies are owned by the same small, narrow group of people like J.P. Morgan back in the day. There's this marvelous quote you have in the book from uh, the president of Archer, Daniels Midland, saying, our competitors are our friends, our customers are our enemies. That about sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> well, pretty much. For a lot of different industries that you look at, I mean, uh, customers are viewed as, as essentially being, you know, they, they can be taken advantage of egregiously. This happens, uh, you know, unfortunately in the medical industry um, and in hospitals. And it's not to say, obviously, that every doctor or hospital or drug company is bad, but rather that some industries, and the medical one in particular, has what economists call inelastic demand. It means that, you know, you're going to pay for whatever that procedure is because you feel it's important and your life depends on it. And so when you view your customer as the enemy that you know, and you want to sort of gouge them, then the sky's the limit. And unfortunately, that's what we've seen over the last couple of years with you know, the um, patents, which function as an, a, a, yeah. an effective form of monopoly over a particular drug. We've just seen sort of tremendous uh, price gouging. Yeah. You know, I'm uh, most familiar with the technology business, sort of where a lot of my experience has been. And, and the tech businesses have taken this to 11, haven't they? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So t- let's talk about that. You know, like we, we call it network effects, which is a kinder, gentler way to say monopoly, right? Yes. So network <laughs> effects, uh, basically, the, the idea is that, for example, if you think of PayPal, if you have one account and I have one account, then it's, it's interesting. You know, I can send you money, you can send me money, but it's not that interesting. If, on the other hand, you know, we both live in, in Seattle and there are thousands of people on PayPal, then it gets pretty interesting. You know, you could start paying for goods and services. The number of possible connections goes up exponentially, mm-hmm. you know, as you're not just going to get a thousand possible payments. You know, it's, it's going to be a 
a factor of that. And when you get millions and millions of people on, that's what's called network effects, where you want to have, for example, like payers and, and receivers, you want to have buyers and sellers. And in social networks with Facebook, you obviously, the more people who are on there, the, the better it's going to be. No one wants to be on a network with nobody there. There's no one to make connections to. And so this often leads to natural monopolies in the tech world, which is why the um, tech uh, entrepreneurs and venture capitalists love it. The problem is that these are often unregulated monopolies. So the network effect exists. It leads to essentially winner-take-all dynamics. But these are not like, uh, for example, water utilities, where you know water is a basic human need. And so almost all water utilities or companies in the world are essentially regulated utilities. And so you know, the no one can charge you a hundred dollars, you know, just to be able to, you know, provide some water for your family for dinner. That's not really the case with these tech giants. And so they can and do uh, abuse their position. Are we even equipped to deal with these types of industries? The Facebooks and Googles, do we have the governing philosophy that is even capable of regulating it? So th there are some rules on the books that could be enforced. Um, and the, one of the big problems I point out in the book is that you know, people often point to the dominance of these companies and, and say that it was inevitable. And in some cases, the network effects you know, may have made it inevitable. But what's often the case is that the regulator is essentially captured and doesn't want to even do its job. And so believe it or not, there have been you know, over, as I mentioned in the book, over 400 acquisitions in, in the last uh, sort of five years by a lot of these companies. Some of the acquisitions were small, some were big. But all of these got approved. None of them got challenged. For example, if you look at the digital uh, duopoly, Google and Facebook essentially control online ads. Uh, Google was allowed to buy DoubleClick. So Google does search, DoubleClick did display ads. Suddenly they were able to you know, capture most of the, of the market. And then Facebook would have had competition from Instagram and WhatsApp and instead was able to buy both of those. And now anyone who wants to serve ads wants to serve them on the platforms that have the most data on the users. And so what you've ended up with is essentially the network effects working in the favor of Google and Facebook, even though their dominance wasn't inevitable. It was the result uh, to a large part, I would argue, of the digital ad duopoly, which is an outright monopoly on the, on the social and an outright monopoly on the search side, due to a lack of enforcement of, of, of standards and laws. To, to answer your question, something could have been done and it was not. Yeah. So, John, what do you think? What do we have to do? I mean, we have really painted ourselves into a corner economically and politically uh, by allowing all this consolidation what what do we what do we do to get out of this mess so in, in the last chapter of the book, we offer humbly uh, some specific proposals. So, you know, while the situation is uh, slightly depressing in, in some ways, uh, there certainly are solutions to the problems. And you know, I, I do think that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, Wall Street uh, made about $21 billion with a B last year, pushing mergers and acquisitions. There are quite a lot of very well-paid lawyers and economists who push uh, mergers. Um, so there's unfortunately a lot of money on the other side of the table. But the good yeah. news is that, you know, as, as you and I are seeing as we, you know, speak to people, you know, and I've been traveling around on the book tour and, you know, you talk to a lot of people as you speak, there clearly is a groundswell in the other direction. And I think that what we have to do is to pressure um, politicians to make sure that we get proper antitrust reform. So one of the first things is prevent future mergers that are anti-competitive um, to make sure that we don't end up with uh, more oligopolies yeah. and duopolies and monopolies. We also 
also need to break up past mergers that were anti-competitive, you know, which is something that the U.S. has been extremely loath to do for decades. Um, you know, they, they didn't even break up Microsoft back in the day. It, it did, by the way, um, allow for the rise of Google. I mean, if Microsoft had simply controlled Internet Explorer to favor MSN search, there would be no Google. So, um, you know, antitrust and reigning in monopolists does work. Um, that, that's the sort of second thing. I think what we need is uh, also um, much more pro-competitive and uh, better uh, regulations uh, ra- rather than uh, regulatory capture and lobbying. And I th- so on the regulatory capture side, we certainly need to make sure that you know people can't go, for example, straight out of the FTC and then go work for a K Street law firm to ar- to argue in favor of of mergers, you know, arguing in front of their former colleagues. And so you know, and that's just one, but there are many other uh, parts of government where we see this sort of revolving door and regulatory capture. So the large tech companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, break them up or regulate them as common carriers, both? Uh, I think both is probably a good solution. I think that if, if certainly uh, earlier I talked about Google and Facebook and mentioned a few specific acquisitions. Um, you know, they vertically integrated, Google vertically integrated online advertising by buying AdMob. There are quite a lot of acquisitions that have been, you know, terribly anti-competitive. I think the online ad world would be much better served by having more competition. And I certainly think that Facebook users would be much better off if Facebook itself were broken up. And in terms of common carrier provisions, which you reference, for example, UPS, and FedEx can't decide that they're going to favor your packages over mine. And unfortunately, what happens right now is that you have, for example, in the case of Amazon, Amazon is actively competing um, and using its information that it has to compete with its own people. And then Google effectively, you know, uses its information and, uh, you know, regulates essentially its own homepage to its own advantage for Google services, for example, you know, versus, you know, there's the Yelp, but there's also the European case of Foundum. And, you know, these are not acting essentially like a common carriers. Yeah, interesting. Well, yikes. There's a lot to do to fix this problem. It is it is daunting. But, you know, I think one of the most encouraging pieces of this is that people are finally waking up to it. And, um, you know, 24 months ago, 36 months ago, no one was talking about monopoly and monopsony. And it's everywhere today. And I, you know, I take that as a good sign that there is at least the beginning of a groundswell of support politically to begin to address these issues. I certainly think that's the case. Um, you know, n- no one was writing about this sort of three years ago and, and very few two years ago. And, you know, last fall, Tim Wu wrote his book, The Curse of Bigness. Uh, we wrote uh, The Myth of Capitalism. Jonathan Baker's coming out with a big book uh, in, the, in the coming months. You had Jonathan Taplin move fast and break things. And now you get zucked, uh, you know, by Roger McNamee. And so everyone's now focusing on digital monopolies, but also monopolies more broadly. And essentially, you know, the, the history of sort of how we got here in terms of the demise of, of anti trust. So it's, I think it's very encouraging that the debate is shifting. I love it. Well, John, thank you so much for spending time with us and talking about your work. It's been a wonderful contribution to the conversation about where the economy and where capitalism has gone wrong. Well, thank you so much. We wish you well. Go, go <laughs> kick some ass out there. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Bye. bye. Thanks. Bye. Oh my God, so here are the pro tips from Mr. Monopoly for a fair, fast, competitive game. Uh, Wow. Rule five, 
There's no such thing as rent immunity. I guess that means you can't like trade free rent for like friendship or anything else. Six, buy, sell, dream, and scheme. You can swap or sell properties and get out of jail free cards with any player at any time. Always trade for profit, never for pity. Perfect. You can mortgage your property to raise money to buy houses, hotels, or other properties. And finally, and most important, and most relevant to our existing economy, being the banker doesn't give you the right to steal. Take that, Goldman Sachs. So it's really astounding uh, how concentrated the labor market has become and how that has contributed to declining wages. And so to learn a little more about the impact of monopsonies, we turn to your friend, Jared Bernstein. Yes, Jared uh, is an economist and, among other things, was Vice President Biden's chief economic advisor uh, and is an expert on these matters. Jared, Nick. Hey, baby. How are things in Washington, D.C., USA? Is there anything new out there? <laughs> the swamp has yet to be drained. <laughs> It's getting swampier, in fact. <laughs> but he promised. <laughs> so let's uh, start out by talking about this economic term, monopsony, that has Ooh, all of a okay. sudden sort of crashed into the public consciousness, or at least is beginning to. It's a word that you didn't hear for a long time, and now every time I open a newspaper or read anything about economics, it's something that's come up. So... Can you talk to us about what monopsony is and why we should care about it? Sure. Uh, well, listeners may be familiar with the idea of monopoly, which is when one seller controls the market. A monopsony is when uh, one buyer controls the market, specifically the market for labor. So simply put, it means an employer that has uh, a great deal of power uh, in setting the wages and labor standards of the workers because it, it, they're, they're the only employer or maybe one of a few employers. Uh, at least in a theoretical sense, that's what a monopsony is. In the real world, what it means, and the reason it's become uh, more uh, well-known is because the problem that we're talking about has grown. In the real world, what it means is that in some key industries, it's not that there's one employer, but there's just a few employers. And their concentration within the industry is so large that they can control the terms of hiring and labor standards and wage rates. And it's one of the reasons why we've been having uh, difficulty on the wage side. I think the simple way to say it, because I think sometimes you hear the word monopsony and just sort of get scared, is employer power. Yeah. It means a level of employer power to set standards and wages in, in key labor markets that uh, is going to typically redound not to the benefit of workers. And to be clear, while he didn't use the word, this is a concept that goes all the way back to Adam Smith. Yes, it's actually interesting how many of these concepts go back to Adam Smith, who has been completely misrepresented as somehow embracing what we now call sort of neoclassical or excessive market economics. And Adam Smith was the one who said, I'm paraphrasing, that when employers get together, they're going to collude and conspire to screw workers in some way or another. Yes. And so, yeah, he, he really, he power, interestingly, 
was uh, deeply embedded in his model and my model and your model. And monopsony is one of the ways that's playing out in today's economy. Yeah, I was always struck by this massive blind spot that so many economists seem to have about the dynamics of labor markets, which is this, this idea that people were paid what they deserve or what they're worth. Nothing could be farther from the truth. People get paid what they can negotiate, <laughs> you know, what they have the power to negotiate. And there are a few people in the economy that have lots of power and are therefore paid a lot. Uh, but most people have no power and therefore are not paid very much. And this is why all these claims that, you know, like increasing profits will lead to higher wages is just such bunk. I mean, there's no reason in the world why more profits for me will turn into wages for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. And it's actually the what you're talking about is, is this assumption that um, workers are going to get paid their marginal contribution to the firm's output. And obviously, you know, employers, you've been an employer. That is not true. That. <laughs> that's not how it works. That is not um, how it works. And, and it's characteristic of the kinds of assumptions that have gotten economics in all kinds of trouble. You know, as you were talking, I was reminded of the moment when Greenspan, uh, in testimony after the financial crisis, essentially said to the members of Congress who were questioning him, you know, my model was wrong uh, because I assumed, this is Greenspan talking, I assumed that um, financial institutions would self-regulate to protect themselves from uh, the kinds of problems that they got themselves in. Well, again, Adam Smith was very clear that that isn't the way it works. No. So a set of assumptions kind of arose over the years. And, you know, we can look at those from the perspective of economic history, economics becoming very mathematical, or probably more germanely, we can look at them in terms of who do they serve in this power structure. And that's, that's the way I look at it. And I, get, I really don't want to lose the thread because it's consistent with what we've been talking about so far. It is commonly misunderstood that the assumptions in economics are benign or they're, they're mathematical or they sort of come out of a model that may or may not be right. In fact, they come out of a model that isn't right, A. But B, these are very much politically motivated assumptions that serve one class over another, and it's that class that's been winning for a long time. Right. Absolutely. So monopsony, you know, increasing amounts of buyer power in labor markets, it's not exactly a new phenomenon, but it is indisputably based on the way in which our markets have evolved in this country, an increasing phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah. If you go back 30 or 40 years, there may have been some monopsonistic parts of the labor market, but I, I don't really see them in the data. Now we have you know, very scholarly and careful papers that look at the concentration by industry and they correlate it with outcomes like, for example, here's a really important one. It may sound a little obscure, but it isn't. So if you think about economic income as just the part that goes to profits and the part that goes to compensation, so call it capital share or profit share and labor share. One of the things that the research on employer concentration, employer power, monopsony, has found is that as employer power has increased, labor share has decreased and the profit share has gone up. So the unemployment rate is around 4% right now. The last time the unemployment rate was 4%, labor share of national income was 66%. Now the unemployment rate is once again 4%, closing on full employment. The labor share 
is 62%. So that's 4% of GDP. That's $800 billion, about 4000 bucks per worker. Yeah. So these papers now are correlating that increase in employer power with the decline in labor share of national income. And obviously, as we're talking about all this firm concentration, I think listeners might say, well, wait a second. I certainly see what you're talking about on the labor side and the wage side. You think of a monopolist often with gouging prices. And actually, you don't see a lot of that. Uh, Prices remain pretty low. Inflation remains pretty low. One of the things that I've been struck by is the extent to which firms are taking their power out on labor and labor share and wages and not so much gouging consumers. I just find that to be an important wrinkle. That's right. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I've had a lot of sort of personal and visceral experience around this concentration because, you know, one of my formative business experiences was growing up and helping build and run the family bed pillow and down comforter business, a home furnishings and textile business that we sold about a year ago, but that, you know, I started at when I was small. And in the beginning, in the early days, there was no concentration in our customer base because we sold to dozens of retailers across the country that were almost all with the exception of a couple, JCPenney and Kmart, that were regional, right? There was a regional department store. There was a regional discounter. There were specialists who served regions and or, or tiny niches. And over time, virtually all of those regional players were replaced by a couple of giant sellers, Walmart, Target, Bed Bath & Beyond, and a few others. And And the knock-on effects of that concentration are extraordinarily important for the dynamics of the economy, but not well understood by most people. And among them is that when you have that kind of concentration of buying power, the number of vendors that one of those companies will have in any particular product category does not go up, right? You have three vendors. And whereas you had 100 retailers buying from three vendors before, now if you have three retailers buying from three vendors, the number of possible vendors there can be, manufacturers who make products for those retail companies, has to diminish too. And what Mm -hmm. that means is that that has a huge impact on the geographic diversity of prosperity, right? Because in the old days, there could be a supplier in every tiny town supplying the local retailers. Today, that's impossible. Can we talk a a little bit about the the specific impacts that we're seeing? Obviously, there's much greater market concentration, both in terms of buyer and seller power. Um, How is this affecting the typical American worker? Well, it's been uh, holding down pay in... uh ways that are well documented. So uh, right now, just to use the current climate as uh, the most recent evidence, we're at low unemployment, as I've mentioned, and historically low unemployment has been associated with climbing real pay for middle and low wage workers. We've not seen nearly enough of that. In fact, for middle wage workers, real pay has been flat and nominal wages haven't been growing very quickly, certainly not as fast as you'd expect. And one reason for that is that productivity is pretty low. Well, if you sort of squeeze the competition out of the market in the way Nick's story that he told kind of leads to, it's perhaps not that big a reach that uh, you've got really dampened uh, productivity growth as well. Um, Employer power and concentration has made it 
extremely difficult for unions to get a foothold. And of course, the American union movement is being uh, whacked on all sides, both the loss of jobs in sectors like manufacturing that are unionized, but also right-to-work rules, which are basically anti-union rules in states. So there's a political dimension here. And so I think the combination of employer power and the money in politics problem that I, I mentioned earlier creates this very toxic brew that not only damages the living standards of the majority of the workforce, uh, but probably dampens the dynamism in the economy as well. Right, right. There's less reason to invest in uh, productivity-enhancing technology if your labor costs remain very low. Yeah. Exactly. One of the things a lot of people have noted and economists scratch their heads about is that the role and the number of, of startups has diminished over time as these other other factors have developed. And you know, one of the things that happens is the very large firms buy up the small ones before they can necessarily uh, flourish. And so there is a concern, as you mentioned, that as long as you can sort of run a profitable firm, even without making much in terms of capital investment, you'll do so. Yeah. From the point of view of the business person, it's so much easier to generate outsized returns if you can just squeeze workers rather than actually having to invest capital and innovate in ways that actually improve products and services. If you were a benevolent dictator instead of the kind of would-be dictator we have right now, uh, how would you address this problem from a policy perspective? It's interesting when you started talking about uh, what we have now. Uh, around Washington, I'm known as Jared the Good. Distinguished <laughs> <laughs> from the other Jared. Uh, so anyway, uh, we've used this it's not a four-letter word, it's a five-letter word, power. We've talked about that word in our conversation, and it looms large. And so I would really focus on trying to restore bargaining power to working people. The first thing you think of in that context is unions, and I'd certainly do what I could to try to level the playing field for union organizing, but I wouldn't put all my eggs in that basket. That's, you know, that's a 40-, 50-year trend, and it's very hard to buck such a long trend. So I would try to think about other ways to empower workers. Well, one of the things you can do is really improve labor standards. And don't, I don't mean nibbling at the edges, but I mean a significant increase in the minimum wage, a significant increase in the overtime premium. Uh, and uh, I've done a lot of research on both of those areas. And, and, and you could accomplish those without, I think, generating much in the way of, of downside impacts. And then I would really focus on um, the macro economy. So the unemployment rate is, as I said, low. There's a kind of an institutional bias in economics to start kind of tapping and then maybe hitting uh, harder the brakes just when the economy starts to deliver the goods for working people. So I really would enforce, as benevolent dictator, a much uh, more careful macroeconomic process that would let us get down to truly full employment and stay there without worrying about overheating and inflation, unless, and it's a very big caveat, I saw you know, true evidence of that. I think one of the problems is that we um, slow the economy down because we're convinced that inflationary pressures are around the corner when they're not. Uh, you were talking about uh, using the tax code for redistributive purposes, and I, I presume when you say that, you mean raising taxes on rich people like Nick. Uh, isn't that going to be a yeah, job killer? Just, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely not. I mean, this is something I've spent 
way too much time arguing about if facts could kill this zombie of trickle-down yeah. supply-side economic theory, we'd be giving its eulogy at its graveside, you know, 20 years ago. But it is impenetrable to facts. Uh, it's pure ideology. But the the historical empirical record is clear that there is uh, no correlation to speak of between the kinds of tax changes we've implemented and uh, employment or even investment. Well, thank you so well, much look, for your time. It's been great talking to you guys. Okay, and we'll talk soon. We'll see you soon. Okay, thank right, you. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, we're playing for your, your private jet, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. You can have... All right, get, so it's my turn. Well, we put our cars up against each other. If yeah. you win, you get my Prius C, and if I win, I get your, your Tesla. My new Tesla. Perfect. Okay, seven. How bad is that? One, two, three, six. four, five, six. It's ah, six. shit. Ah, Atlantic Avenue with a hotel. Do you even have this much money left? How much? It's 1150 Ah, shit. Did I win? Did I bankrupt you? Five. <laughs> Hold on. Six, <coughs> seven, eight, hundred, fifty... Nine sixty nine seventy no nine seventy five. Nope. I win. So I think Nick, there's a theme emerging on our podcast. Uh, when we talked about stock buybacks, it all went back to a change made during the Ronald Reagan administration. And now that we're talking about market concentration and the way we regulate antitrust. It all goes back to a change that happened during the Ronald Reagan administration. Oddly, 1982. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's fascinating. It, yeah. And for sure, you know, our policies are a reflection of our ideas and the economic ideas that were accepted both on the right and left over the last 40 years were neoclassical and neoliberal ideas. And we have ended up with some very, very bad policies that have harmed everyone except the rich. As we said many times before, neoliberalism is a protection racket for rich people. <laughs> and if, uh, and you know, the best way in the world for the rich to get richer is to enable increasing amounts of market concentration, which is, of course, what we've seen. So Nick, um, as somebody who hasn't made a ton of money <laughs> off of capitalism, I'm feeling like a loser here. It turns out that to be a, a, a good capitalist, you have to be a bad person. <laughs> What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, uh, for example, Peter Thiel, one of the most evil people on the planet. Very successful capitalist. A very, very successful sociopath, uh, a capitalist, actually wrote in the Wall Street Journal, he had a, an essay, competition is for losers. <laughs> if you want to create and capture lasting value, look to build a monopoly. Yeah, and it is ironic that many of the most successful capitalists in the country uh, certainly a, a lot of very, very successful investors and the people who claim to be most dedicated to the capitalist system uh, and free markets seek to avoid free markets at all costs. Be that, because they understand their Econ 101 textbook. Yeah, if you have perfect competition, there's will, no profit to be that's made. That's right. Exactly. And so... You know, my entire industry, the venture capital industry, more or less, is predicated on the idea that you'll try to create a monopoly and high amounts of profit and then, 
you know, consolidate industries and so on and so forth. And so, you know, we, we have a lot of work to do in the country to change the way in which we collectively think about economics and markets and build policies again that actually create competition, that actually are organized to increase innovation and to benefit everybody. This is yet another great example of uh, the corrosive effects of neoliberal ideas on our society, our economy, and our culture. And then the uh, the funny thing is, of course, that the guy who eventually copyrighted, he didn't actually have the rights. So, so Milton Bradley, I think, bought the copyright to his game, paid him like the most amount of money anybody had ever paid for the rights to a board game, and then quietly had to buy the rights to the game he stole. Uh, so that Milton Bradley ended up with a monopoly on Monopoly. <laughs> so the best example I know of in the economy of the effects of monopsony on wages is the fact that millions and millions and millions of Americans are working longer and longer and longer with no extra pay, that they're working overtime without being paid for that overtime. Uh, and so in the next episode, we're going to examine the issue of overtime pay and the policies surrounding overtime pay, because overtime is for the middle class what the minimum wage is for low wage work. And in the absence of good overtime policy, you basically can't build a thriving middle class. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks. And you should also follow Nick Hanauer on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thank you to our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Nick Casella, and Annie Fadley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.